Passages, I'm Rachel Powell, and this is Passages Voice. For such a time as this, find out why Chelsea deeply felt these words from the book of Esther and how it brought her to where she is today. Today on Passages Voice. Hello everyone, this is Rachel here, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Chelsea Andrews, our Director of Strategic Affairs at Passages. Chelsea is actually one of the first employees that ever came on. She's like one of the founding founding members of Passages, so she's been around for a few years now. Um, but Chelsea, can you give us a little bit of a background about yourself and how you ended up with Passages? Yeah, thank you for having me. This is my first time doing our podcast. I'm really excited. I love listening to the other episodes. Um, I went to Liberty University. I started uh, college in 2011, and I actually didn't even plan on going to school, uh, to college at all. I'm the first member of my family to do so. And then um, also, I wasn't a Christian before I got to Liberty either. So there's a whole backstory there of how I even got to Liberty. It's really cool to see God's providence in. Um, but once I was at Liberty, I got involved in a couple of dis- different issues, and one of them became um, the Israel issue. So at the end of my freshman year of college, when I was the freshman class president, I had some students that were in the master's program who were mentoring me, and they told me that if I wanted to get involved in politics, I needed to understand what I thought about Israel. So as a new Christian, as someone from rural Indiana um, that didn't know a lot about international relations or politics in general, they told me I needed to go to a Stand with Israel Club meeting. And at the time, I thought that that meant like an Old Testament Bible study. So I went to the meeting, uh, that first one, my uh, freshman year, and I heard about conference in D.C. that I could go to learning about Israel. So I went to that conference, and that sort of uh, started the whole trajectory of my activism within college. So by the time that I was a senior, I was going all over the country. I was speaking in Denver and Atlanta and Washington, D.C., and um, I ended up getting hired into a job in D.C. working for an Israel-related organization. And that first summer that I was working in my job, I heard about the Philos Project. I'd recently gone to Israel with an organization that sent um, 20 of us students that were top activists our senior years in college. And I was one of two Christians out of the 20. And after that trip, a bunch of my friends said, hey, we heard about this group. It's brand new. Uh, It's called the Philos Project. And it's a way for Christians to go to Israel. Chelsea, have you heard about it? Because I was their new Christian friend that knew about Israel. Um, and I ended up applying for the inaugural Philos Leadership Institute trip. Um, that summer of 2015, I went and I met Robert Nicholson, who's one of our board members now at Patches. And he and I stayed close for the next couple months. And then when Patches got started and he was one of the founding board members, he asked if I would scoot on up to Chicago and help start this company that didn't have a name yet. So that's kind of the genesis story of how I got involved. That is so cool. And so you, you've been involved for a long time in the, this Israel world, um, but you also have like this inspiration um, in the story of Esther. And this month, if you guys don't know, is Women's History Month. And it's also the celebration of the Jewish holiday of Purim, um, which is based around Esther. Um, so Chelsea, can you give us a little bit of a background of like Esther as a person and also how it ties in to this Jewish holiday? Yeah, so I actually have a tattoo on my left foot in Hebrew, and it says le'et kazot, which means four times such as this. So I have that on my foot because she's a huge inspiration to me. I think we'll talk about that more in, in a little bit, but I wanted to follow in her footsteps. 
So I absolutely adore the story of Esther, um, her as a person. And I went back even before this podcast and reread um, the whole book of Esther just in prep for this. And I thought it might be um, a good idea to kind of run through the story. So I don't want to go too much through the specifics, but I did want to give us um, basically a recap of what happened. So we're way back in history, way back in the day. This is around like 465, that era. Um, Jews had been exiled out of um, their ancestral homelands. They were all over um, the world or all over the Middle East. And for the story of Esther, we zoom in on Persia and Medea, most notably Persia. So right around the time where Esther comes into power, I'll get more into that in a second, um, Jews were actually able to go back um, to their homeland. But a lot of Jews around in Persia had assimilated enough into the culture that um, they still acted different. The, the Book of Esther talks about there was something different specific about them. Um, but they were assimilated. This was their new home. They were, they were in culture. They were doing well. So um, that's just a little bit of context as we talk about what's, what's going to go on more. That's where the Jewish people are um, in the narrative. So the Greeks and the Persians are fighting. And then we have King Xerxes. That's the story that, or the name to him that I knew most. Um, he's also called King Erasmus. Um, but I'm going to call him Xerxes for the, for the sake of me kind of recapping everything. So the story starts out. King Xerxes is in rule uh, for a couple of years. He's in, I think this is his third year of reign or so. And um, he finishes out some things and then he has this big party. There's like 180 days where he has, he's showing off like his wealth and his splendor. And it's very, very um, dramatic. It's, it's kind of like you're watching a, a drama on TV. So he has this big party. And then a couple of days in, he decides that he wants to call on his wife, um, Vashti, to show off to um, his seven kind of like councilmen that, that advise him. So he calls for his wife. She says no, that she's not going to come. I'm going to kind of cut the story a little bit short here. Um, she doesn't want to come to him. He wants to show off her beauty. He requests specifically for her to come with her crown on, and she says no. The story doesn't say why she says no, but it just says that she says no. So then all of a sudden, you have this king whose wife didn't listen to him. So the story of Esther talks about how the king needs, to, like a man needs to rule his home. So the king goes to his councilman. He goes to um, his different officials, and he, he tells them what's happening. And all of a sudden, these men are whispering in his ear, and they're saying, you know, if your wife's not going to listen to you, this is going to travel through all the provinces and our wives aren't going to listen to us. So what they advise the king to do is to basically get rid of his wife. And then he does that. And they tell him that he should find seven other virgins who are the most beautiful women that are from all the different provinces. So the story talks about how these, um, these edicts are written in the name and the language um, the, the letters of these different tribal communities so that everybody can understand the edicts that are written. So they do a command where they're going to find the most beautiful people. Fast forward, and Esther is actually chosen um, as a Jewish person, but she doesn't, she doesn't say that yet. So Esther is related to a guy named Mordecai. We all know him as a, a major player in the story. He's actually, so Esther is the daughter of Mordecai's uncle. So kind of like cousins, if you want to call them that, it makes it a little bit easier. Um, and he adopts her. He raises her after her, um, her mom and her dad die. So they're very close. And she listens to Mordecai. That's a, like a major theme of the story. So as um, she's going through this time where she's taken in, and these women, they go through like these, these six months and six months periods where they have these, um, these beauty treatments that are done to them. And then for six months, and then there's perfumes that are done to them for six months. And then you get to go to the king. So there's actually a four-year gap from the time that Vashti is getting, um, she's like dispelled from the kingdom 
to where all of a sudden the king meets Esther. And she's immediately met with favor. He loves her. He adores her. And what they said at the time was that you're not able to ever go to the king unless he requests you by name. So all of these women who he's basically entertaining, um, they come, they go, different people are watching them. She's there for these years of processes. And then she's requested back by the king. Fast forward again, they end up getting married. So then what happens is Esther is inside. She's the queen. The king adores her, likes her so much. All this great. So Mordecai, her cousin, her, her guardian, stays at the king's gate. And then he hears that there's two Enochs that are plotting to kill the king. So Mordecai ends up telling Esther. She ends up making sure that the right people hear about it. The king is then saved. And then there's this guy, Haman, who gets promoted through a result of different people being removed, and, and he moves up. So then what happens is Haman tells Xerxes that the Jews are different. He notices that when he's promoted, all of a sudden there's this one Jewish guy out by the gate who doesn't bow to him like everyone else does. And he gets really, really angry at Mordecai for not bowing at him, Haman does. So what Haman does is he goes and he whispers to the king and he says, um, the Jews are different. The Jews are rebellious. The Jews don't listen. They follow their own laws. He says all these kings and the king basically says, okay, you know, I trust you, Haman, you know, you're my key guy, my right hand, here's my ring, do whatever you need. He actually gives him a ring um, to pay for whatever needs done. And then Haman sends out letters and people's languages to the community saying that on this specific day, this comes into the Purim story with the word park. Um, he says, on this day, we're going to kill all the Jews in all the different provinces all over Persia. So the king ends up blessing Haman um, and, and gives him this ring to pay for um, whatever needs to be done, he says, you know, do what you need to do with these, these Jewish people. You got it. So what ends up happening is Esther and the appeal that Mordecai gave to her, she asks her servants and she asks Mordecai and the Jewish communities to fast for three days. After this three-day period, she goes to the king. And this is something that she was, at first Mordecai requested of her to do it. They had to use a, a middleman because he couldn't speak directly to her. Um, Esther was like, I'm, I'm going to be killed. You can't just walk up to a king. And, and ask something of them, but that, that's not how this works. So it ends up happening, and I actually want to read this straight from my Bible. I love this line because this is where the, the most famous part of the book of Esther that I mentioned before I have to show my foot comes from. So this is from um, Esther 4, 13. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all of the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you just come to your royal position for times such as this. So to kind of zoom out from the story real quick, and then I'll finish out everything real quick for us. Um, there's something that I heard a lot when I lived down in DC. A lot of activists from many different causes, religious people, non-religious people, they use the phrase for times such as this whenever they're rallying people. It's a common activist phrase. And I remember talking to a friend down in DC who um, is actually Catholic, and I mentioned to him that phrase being from Esther, and he didn't know what I meant. So we actually went through, after Mass one time, I went to Mass with him, and we read the book of Esther, and he said he had no idea that that phrase, for a time such as this, came from the context of Esther advocating for her people to not be killed. Um, so for me, that, that one specific verse is huge, and this is the context for that verse. So Esther ends up going to the king, and she invites him, and Haman specifically, to go to a dinner. So Haman feels very honored. He feels like he's in this higher position. He's already got word from the king that he can 
you know, handle the Jewish people in the way that he sees fit. And now the queen, who they don't know is Jewish yet, is specifically asking for the king and he, Haman, to come to this dinner. So they go to the dinner that night. The king asks her, like, what do you need? I'll give you up to anything, like half the kingdom. And she says, well, can you guys just come to a dinner tomorrow? So then they go to a dinner the next night, and then the king ends up asking her, and I'm going to round out the whole story here for us. The king ends up asking her, he was like, you know, asked her, like, like, what do you need? We went to dinner last night. We're, we're here, you know, now. And during that time, Haman had gone home. He left the palace, and he had seen um, Mordecai outside the gate, again, not bowing to him. So Haman's talking to his family at his house, and he says, you know, there's this Jewish guy named Mordecai. He won't bow to me, and he's venting to his people in his home, and they tell him, well, why don't you like take care of him? Why don't you build some gallows seven feet high, and why don't you hang him? So Haman says, oh, you know, that's not the idea. At the same time that he's having this whole conversation go on, the king can't sleep that night. So what he's doing is he actually goes to the man who keeps the scribes of um, like a historian, and he asks for uh, a note of a book. And he ends up finding out through this this journaling and this um, this context that Mordecai actually was the one who reported the two men who were trying to have the assassination on the king, which is how Haman got promoted. So in this one night, all of a sudden, the king says, oh, my gosh, I need to honor this man at the same time that Haman is saying, I'm going to hang this man in the gallows. So the next morning, um, the king goes to Haman before Haman says anything and says, what should I do if someone is so honored? And Haman's thinking that the king is going to honor him even more. He's getting prideful. So he says, you should give them a robe, you should get them a horse, you should parade them through the city. So the king says, okay, do that for Mordecai. So all of a sudden, Haman is having to, to take Mordecai on this horse, wearing this outfit all through the city. They come back, the, uh, Esther ends up telling the king, she says, this is what happened. This is who Mordecai is. This is who Haman is. And Haman ends up being killed. Um, to end out the whole story, Esther ends up taking... Uh, and talking to the king, she appeals to him twice, and both times, both which could be a threat in her life, um, she saves the Jewish people. First, it's with um, Mordecai and in context, and then specifically it's to appeal for all the Jews throughout all the provinces not to be killed on the specific day that Haman asked them to be, um, or called for them to be killed on. So the ring that was originally given to pay for all these things then goes specifically to Mordecai. Mordecai rises to power, the Jewish people around the land end up killing the people who are trying to kill them in the thousands and they're all they're all saved the book says um so all of this kind of ends out with what's the word purim that's what we're talking about in this podcast where does the word purim come from so the word pur p-u-r purim is spelled p-u-r-i-m um the word pur talks about a lot so um the first month of this this Jewish calendar year there's a lot that happens. It talks about historically there's the Jews coming out of their exile. There's always different things that historically will happen to the Jewish people. So what is their lot going to be? And at this time, because of the way the sequence of events happen, Esther being able to save the Jewish people from the lot that Haman called against them is happening in the month of poor. So the poor means, or the, the not in the month of poor, but for the lot of poor. Chelsea, that story is incredible. Um, it's amazing to hear how God's favor um, rested with Esther and then how she acted in response to a horrible situation and how God saved the Jewish people. But how specifically has her story inspired you and, and other women that you know? Absolutely. So for me specifically, Esther represents a woman who 
is in a position and she takes charge of it. I think that it's so easy for people to always talk about, you know, the future of what they want and the opportunities that they want to have and not realizing that in the moment you're in, you are able to do so much. Um, it was recently Holocaust Remembrance Day and one of my friends quoted something that Anne Frank said, and I'm not going to get this perfect because it's off the top of my head, but she said something along the lines of, isn't it beautiful that we need not wait any day to improve the world? So to me, for Esther to be able to be in a moment and just go for it is something that we all need to do a little bit better of a job in appreciating the decisions that we're at in life. And then I also, um, as I was prepping for this too, asked two of my friends very intentionally um, who are politically polar opposites and they're both the Jewish women. So one of my friends is very conservative. She's actually Shomerit Nagia, which means that she doesn't touch somebody of the opposite sex. She's very conservative. Um, and I asked her, like, what, is, what does Esther mean to you? And she says that Esther's mission wasn't always clear. She didn't always know what she was going to be doing. She, like, her as a woman in her Judaism, she didn't know what her, her mission, her calling, if you will, as we say, Christianese, was. But she was able to completely grasp hold of that when she was called and when she was needed to be used. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I have a friend whose name is Lauren, and she's very progressive. She's very liberal. She's a staunch feminist. And I asked her, what does Esther mean to you? And she actually sent me um, a couple of different sources and we kind of boiled things down. And she said it was really interesting to compare Queen Fashti with Queen Esther. So the, the queen that starts out the story who won't even go to the king so that he can parade her as a beauty compared to Esther who advocates and saves the entire Jewish people. So what Lauren said was interesting because the story starts out with the men saying, we need to make sure that men are going to rule the home. We need to make sure that women standing up to the men aren't, you know, something that spreads throughout the entire kingdom. And what's interesting is that Esther always listens to Mordecai. Esther is always respectful. Esther is always the, the icon throughout the entire book that is well-behaved. And yet Esther is the one who rules the kingdom and saves the Jewish people. Esther is the one who takes Mordecai's appeal to the king. So it's this interesting paradigm between the feminism that Lauren noticed and then Leora saying contentment with the mission that you don't know yet know that you have. Wow, that is really cool and really interesting, Chelsea. <laughs> it's amazing how <laughs> Esther, Esther is one of the only books in the Bible where she's the only one, it's named after a woman and she is the main character in the story. So and I know it's encouraging for me as a woman to have a role model like, like Esther. Um, so thank you, Chelsea, for kind of helping us understand um, the connection uh, between the Jewish people and their holiday and, and also the story of Esther. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think there's also something that could be interesting to note, too, is the way that Jewish people in modern day practice um, the holiday of Purim. So a lot of people will offhandedly say, oh, Purim is like the Jewish version of Halloween. The reason for that is that a lot of Jewish people will put on outfits. Um, they'll go to parties. They, they, it's basically Halloween. They have a giant party. They drink a lot of alcohol and they're merry and, and they're celebrating. So the reason that, that I've read up on and then I've asked her my friends, I said, like, why do you guys wear the outfits? I understand the story of Esther, but where do the outfits come from? And what I've been told is that it's because of masked intentions. You can go throughout the entire story and the intention of people is not necessarily the intention that God has or the intention that the outcome is going to be. So they wear these outfits and then they're joyous to celebrate the fact that they had um, their freedom be able to be saved throughout the story. So modern day you might have a jewish friend who's not very religious or maybe they are but if you're wondering why they're wearing outfits that's why that is good to know it's it's always good to understand some of the traditions and things 
um, behind the things that they celebrate. But thank you so much, Chelsea, for helping us understand these things and for coming on with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Awesome. And we look forward to hearing from you in the future. To learn more about how to get involved, visit passagesisrael.org backslash pulse. From Passages, I'm Rachel Powell. Thank you for listening.